Hit Rap on BFBS. How did one Afghan gunman beat the security cordon to kill an American general? Why does it seem the MOD repeatedly fails its veterans? How is it that Twitter can get a Gaza ceasefire when world powers cannot? The Great War, why a lost driver was the real cause? And was Chapman Pincher the greatest bycatcher of all? Hello, I'm James Hurst in once again for Kate Chabot. This week, Major General Harold Green was assassinated at a meeting in Kabul. A lone Afghan soldier opened fire on a group of senior officers at the new Defence University at Camp Karga. Fifteen other ISAF troops were wounded in the attack. A number of Afghans were also hurt. Rear Admiral John Kirby spoke about the incident at the Pentagon on the day it happened. It's a pernicious threat and it's difficult uh, to to uh, to always ascertain, to come to grips with the scope of it anywhere you are, particularly in a place like Afghanistan. Um, so, uh, and Afghanistan is still a war zone. Um, so, uh, it's impossible to eliminate, uh, completely eliminate that threat. I think, particularly in a place like Afghanistan. But but you can work hard to to mitigate it and minimize it. And ISAF has done that. And and I would, as as terrible as it, as today is, and it is a it's a terrible day, a terrible tragedy. Um, uh, we haven't seen uh, in the course of the last year or so, the, as you described it, a spate of, of these insider threat attacks. Uh, and I think um, that's testament to the good work that authorities have done in ISAF to try to mitigate that threat. Well, with us, a, the defence editor of The Times, Deborah Haynes, Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University, and always BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to you all. Uh, Deborah Haynes, this attack uh, happened on the same site as the British-built officer academy known as Sandhurst in the Sand. So many generals in one place at the same time. Security, you would imagine, would have been very tight. How significant do you think it is that this has been able to happen? I think it's very significant. Um, you're right, security would have had to be very tight for such a, a high-profile um, high group visiting. Um, but it does also underline um, the, the difficulty to counter the threat of an insider attack. Working with the Afghans means that you have to trust them. And obviously mitigation, mitigating measures have been put in place uh, with the sort of guardian angel policy. Um, but you ultimately you need to let um, Afghan security forces work alongside you. And in, in this case, unfortunately, it does seem that um, somebody was allowed to be in a position, um, you know, a privileged position uh, within that security ring. And we don't know the details, but presumably that must have been the case in order for him to have been able to get so close. Um, and that somebody uh, was clearly um, someone with a different agenda. Paul, Professor Paul Rogers, in a sense, the significance of this depends on whether it was a, a carefully planned assassination or an opportunistic attack. Can you see which it was? 
It's very difficult to say at the moment. We, we may get more information in due course. It's certainly true that the number of insider attacks was down last year compared with the previous year, less than half the number of attacks and less than half the number of people killed. So I think security in that sense has probably got higher, although, of course, there are far, far less troops there now. Uh, I agree very much with Deborah that, you know, if you have groups that are very, really intrinsically involved in training, working very closely with Afri Afghan military, then it's very difficult to get complete security. And the reality is that the Taliban and other armed op opposition groups have been able to penetrate, particularly the police, but to some extent the army as well. And I think this is an indication that that group as a whole, the Taliban in particular, are still very much there. And there's other evidence that, in fact, they're causing far more damage and far many attacks on the actual Afghan army and police, with at least 100 being killed every month although that's rarely reported. Uh, Deborah Haynes, this comes when we are still waiting for a bilateral security agreement to be signed, uh, with President Obama talking about leaving 10,000 troops there over the coming years. Is this going to potentially change the mood in the US? Uh, it's one attack, but it's symbolic that it is a, a two-star general. Is, is this going to make it more difficult for a continuing mission? I don't think so. Um, I mean, obviously, it's... It's, a, it's, a, it's symbolically significant, the most senior American officer to be killed in combat, I think, since the Vietnam War. Um, however, it's not going to um, it's not going to dampen their uh, their desire as as kind of you know uh, limited as it is to, to maintain the mission in Afghanistan. Um, it probably strengthens the resolve. You know, you don't want to have lives wasted in this endeavour, um, which will be the case if they aren't able to keep forces on the ground there in this training and mentoring capacity post the end of the year. Uh, Christopher Lee, it's 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 fodder for the for the cynics who's saying we're 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 leaving an imperfect system, we're we're, we're leaving no good. Yeah, um, just think of it this way: uh, it's just one of those things that shouldn't have happened. Let's let's start there. It is not going to change policy in the United States, which is all important. It will not improve the system which is in Kabul at the moment. It won't hurry the political system. It won't dampen the political system. I mean, if, and I don't mean to be cynical, but if there had been a room of, let's say, NCOs and a couple of company commanders and this had happened it wouldn't have been such headlines that's the other thing as far as we know this guy was on control uh, on patrol he came back the other guys on the patrol surrendered their weapons checked their weapons he did not which immediately makes one think well who was passing him up the line where is the other security tunnel through which he could get into a bathroom comes out and blasts away at a room of two stars um the other thing that we have to uh, consider and that is that if the security system is as good as it is, and I think it's important to remember that security has been extraordinarily good, otherwise we'd have had far more headlines like this, then we're getting somewhere, just somewhere towards the ideal of leaving the security system in place and most importantly trained people, especially at that middle management level where you need for training. You're getting close to getting them where you want to be so that you can actually uh, pull out. OK, thank you for your thoughts on that. Let's move on to uh, another story that has been on the front pages of Britain's newspapers in the last couple of days. The Ministry of Defence admitting serious delays over compensation claims for those injured in the armed forces. They say it's because of a high volume of cases and because of staff shortages. But the government insists the way that cases 
are handled is improving. Uh, Deborah Haynes, there is a an impression from uh, these sorts of stories that the MOD is repeatedly getting these things wrong with veterans. What, why do stories like this keep emerging? Well, it's, it's, it's the problem. It's, I think it's all to do with, uh, a lot of it is to do with resourcing. And the fact is there's limited budgets and, um, you know, things get cut and the most vulnerable things to get cut are the ones that aren't involving the front line, which are things like um, the complaint side of the house, um, the compensation side of the house, the sort of softer, uh, the softer elements which aren't deemed as operationally important, but obviously are all part and parcel of this military covenant. And, um, you know, if the MOD is not seen to be upholding the covenant and, you know, injured personnel are being made to wait much longer than is reasonable um, to receive compensation that they deserve, uh, it, it does reflect really badly on the MOD and it's really bad for morale and it's um, just sort of bad all round reputationally. I mean, the Ministry of Defence in, in their response, written response, say that you know, the last year they dealt with around 36,000 claims, average waiting time four to five months. Now, obviously we've seen individual cases where it is significantly more than that, but I, I wonder where you mentioned the military covenant, whether actually um, perhaps the press, perhaps the government itself uh, have created unrealistic expectations of perfect service which can never be delivered. Yeah, and no, I think that's a fair point. And, um, you know, they do make, they do make that, uh, that sort of um, suggestion uh, which some people have found offensive that there's a, a compensation culture and that there are you know, maybe sort of spurious claims being made um, but that doesn't um, deter from the, that shouldn't deter from the fact that there are lots of legitimate claims and that they should be dealt with fairly uh, and it is quite an impressive number 36,000 claims that they have dealt with and they do refute the suggest the MOD refutes the suggestion that there are staff shortages they say that they've got sufficient staff to deal with the problem um, so I, I don't know if it's, I don't know how, I guess there are, um, there seem to be some particularly bad cases that people have been made to wait um, an, uh, you know, an unacceptable length of time. But I don't know if that reflects on the whole system or it's just a reflection of how the most difficult, complicated cases take longer than should be the case. Christopher, what kind of reaction do, do stories like this get from, from senior officers? Do they look at them and go, blooming media, or do they look at them and go, really our government has to do better. I think most senior officers got something you know, that's occupying them and say, look, we've got a system that deals with this, let it get on and deal with it. Why isn't it dealing with it? Um, and the, the things to remember, the, the MOD does have a record. Um, if you go over the past, let's say, 25 years of, of not getting this side of service life right, if you go back, say, oh, I don't know, 1996, 97, we had the thing about... Uh, horrible accommodation, damp accommodation, wrong accommodation, no accommodation. And the, and the MOD seemed to have, I, I'll say, no compassion about the whole thing at all. There was education of children uh, from Germany, family care within units that were actually, uh, or, or, or within families who, who who's sort of mainly f fathers and uh, were on, on operations. And there's also another side of it. The MOD has consistently had a system which couldn't cope with the examination of complaints. I think there's some element of this in here. Some of these uh, uh, complaints are actually quite difficult and complex in as much that people are not in the services, not just left the services. Some of them have actually gone into civilian jobs which didn't work. And so when you get that into a system which is geared up for another way of dealing with things, then you get the problems we've got now. I mean, just 
briefly, one of the key points the government made about the, the military covenant when it was installed is, look, it, it's a work in progress. This is just the beginning. And in a sense, for all these systems, they have systems that have been designed for the past that weren't designed for 13 years of continuous operations, including two, two theatres. Uh, are, are, are our expectations of government too high? Should we actually be looking at what they are trying to do uh, as much as we are at what they deliver. Yeah, you've got you, you've got a system which is uh, quite tight controls, and its terms of refer- reference are very tightly controlled, and therefore there's very little flexibility. Where if you went to I don't know BP or or, or Siemens or, or, or some other or big or commercial organisation, you might get somebody in human resources and say, okay, well in this case we can do so and so. You can't do that in government departments. You cannot do it. Certainly you cannot do it in the military. The other thing which is particularly important to remember, that this covenant is woolly. The terms of reference aren't that good and it's probably going to take a long time for a different type of army um, you know, the, the asymmetric warfare uh, form of army to get things in place. OK, and of course for each story there is an individual facing frustration dealing with the red tape. Uh, Christopher, thanks for your thoughts on that and thanks also to Deborah Haynes, uh, Defence Editor of The Times. Thanks for joining us today. Still to come, what really started the First World War and ten artefacts that tell the story of the conflict. But next, Israel has offered to extend a three-day ceasefire in Gaza, which began on Tuesday, the first major pause in fighting after nearly a month of conflict. In that time, more than 1,800 Palestinians and 67 Israelis have been killed. So far, there is no agreement from Hamas, which controls Gaza, to extending the truce. The US President Barack Obama has said work needs to be done to ensure a more durable ceasefire and truce. I think there are formulas that are available, but they're going to require risks uh, on the the part of uh, political leaders. They're going to require a slow rebuilding of trust, which is obviously very difficult uh, in the aftermath of of the kind of violence that we've seen. Uh, So I don't think we get there right away. Uh, But the U.S. goal right now would be to make sure that the ceasefire holds, uh, that Gaza can can, can begin the process of rebuilding, uh, and that some measures are taken uh, so that the, the people of Gaza feel some sense of hope uh, and the people of Israel feel confident that they're not going to have uh, a repeat of, of the kind of uh, uh, rocket launches that we've seen uh, over the last uh, uh, several weeks. Well, Professor Paul Rogers is still with us. Uh, the question everybody wants to know the answer to is whether this is the end of this particular war. I think it probably is, uh, mainly because the Israelis do seem to want to extend the ceasefire. Hamas still has plenty of capability. The Israeli Defense Forces reckon it still has at least 3,000 rockets. Very few people believe that anything like all the tunnels have been uh, discovered and and destroyed. So, in a sense, uh, Hamas could start things up again, but the suffering within Gaza has been huge, and I think Hamas will be reluctant to do that in the short term. So, so why is it that Israel is seemingly happy to, to bring a close to this conflict now if they've still got rockets? 
Well, I think the thing is, I suspect, and this is only suspicion, that the IDF have told the Israeli politicians to stop it. I think pressure probably came from Obama. I think there will be a lot of reports from Israeli ambassadors and diplomatic missions around the world about the loss of Israeli status, if you like. But the key thing is, one has to remember, the Israeli losses were serious. In Castled a few years ago, there were over a 1,000 Palestinians killed. Nine Israeli soldiers were killed and then four more in a friendly fire incident. This time, I think the total is 64 plus over 400 injured. And essentially, it's proved far, far more difficult to handle the Hamas paramilitaries who are far more trained and, and far more determined. And I think this is probably at the root of this, although it will be some time before the full details of this come out into the public domain. Uh, Christopher, President Obama said there has to be recognition that Gaza cannot sustain itself permanently closed off from the world. It, that's going to look to some like he's telling Israel to end the blockade. Um, well, certainly what um, Hamas is doing is, is telling Israel to end the blockade, and that's one of the conditions for a long-term treaty. But, but it seems about <coughs> President Obama is saying that as well. Uh, I mean, I that's one way of reading it. No, I don't think he is. I think what President Obama is saying is that you, if to have a durable, as he calls it, durable uh, uh, position now, that you've got to look to, uh, to the future, and one of them is re removing the blockade, especially in, in the, at the South Gate, which is essential for all supplies coming in from Egypt. But the important thing he is saying, we've got to look to a time when we can actually uh, fix the problem. Now, there is no indication that the problem can be fixed. And I think we should be careful here. What we're seeing is not so much the end of a particular war. I would suggest we're seeing a truce. Mm. And that is a, a sort of an eighteenth-century, you know, sort of context. But uh, I think that's exactly what we're seeing, and nothing more than that. Uh, Paul Rogers, what what happens next? Assuming that this is the end of of this round of of, of physical fighting. Well, assuming that it is, I, I would agree with uh, Christopher that this is in the nature of a truce, and it's very difficult to see how progress will be made longer term. Um, Hamas is, is, very, is very insistent that there has to be an end to the blockade. It is relatively isolated from regional governments who are mostly opposed to it, but it's getting much more support from what you might call the Arab street. On the Israeli side, the signs are the government is still very popular uh, and it's been popular for what it's done. So in a sense, there's a very big difference between the two sides. And that is why there is actually a risk that this truce may break down. We're not out of the woods on this yet, I'm afraid. Uh, and briefly, Christopher, uh, bringing it back to the UK, th this has prompted a, a resignation in the UK government this week in Baroness Varsi, and, and seemingly to some has, has shown yet again it's, it's, it's in, unable to actually act on the world stage. The Baroness's resignation is not going to cut much ice in the Gaza, quite frankly. Let's get is the reality of all this. I mean, the, the whole reality, you have to get look at the ironies. I mean, a few years ago, who helped start a Hamas, Israel's yeah. biggest enemy? It was Israel who helped start it. And the reason for that is that because, of the, because they wanted to, to separate the Palestinians, etc. I think what we're now going to watch next is what uh, Hamas does. Um, as Paul says, they're getting unpopular in the region, especially with, say, Iran, where they get a lot of their uh, military supplies. Watch for Hamas starting to do deals with North, North Korea now for new weapons. And when they're in position where they've got more assurance then that is when the truce might end. We will watch for that and uh, the world will keep watching. This is BFBS. Sit rep.
This week, commemorations have been held across Britain to mark the centenary of the First World War, uh, the centenary of the, of the point where Britain declared war uh, on Germany and entered the First World War. Uh, Christopher Lee, remind us how the First World War, the Great War, how did it start? OK, three, um, this is 1914, uh, 1914 uh, it's in June, and three assassins, believe it or not, they're called the Red Hand Gang, they go down to Serbia, to Sarajevo, to assassinate Ferdinand, the uh, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. Uh, the t- first two foul up, the third one throws his bomb into the car, uh, but only wounds the driver, OK? So off the, uh, he, 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 he does a runner, goes into a pub in some back street um, and uh, Ferdinand goes, reviews the troops, comes up and he said, right, we go back to the train now, we go back to where we came from. They said, no, 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 we must go and see the driver. So they go see the driver and he said, you know, where is the hospital? He said, we're not quite sure, so let's go down this road and it's a side street and it's a side street when there's, you know, got the royal car coming down the side street, everybody comes out, including from a pub by sheer coincidence. The guy that threw the bomb that only wounded the driver again. No idea that we're going to come. The driver had no idea he was going to be there. So he gets out his pistol and he shoots Ferdinand and he shoots Sophia. And I often thought to myself, well, just supposing, just supposing the driver had got the directions right, we might not have had a First World War. Then what happens is that the Austrian-Hungarians say to the Serbians, right, we're going to declare war on you. The Russians say, oh, no, you're not. The Austrians say, we've got the Germans on our side. So you've got the Germans... Uh, on the side of the Austrian-Hungarians. You've got Russia joining in with Serbia. Russia joins in, so France has to join in because it's got a treaty with France. And then you've got Germans saying, OK, we're going to attack France and we've got to go through Belgium. And they've got to go through Belgium. Then Britain's got an 1839 treaty with Belgium and we get involved in it. That very simply is how it nearly didn't happen, but it did And happen. yet it snowballed. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers, was it inevitable that the UK had to take part? I think it was. I mean, the the position of the Germans was they had to try and get a quick victory and force some sort of peace agreement with France by going round the back of Paris, so to speak. They had to do that before the Russians fully mobilised. The French had very strong defensive and indeed offensive positions on the Eastern Front, uh, particularly around Lorraine, and therefore the, the Germans took uh, had no choice from their perspective but to come through Belgium. And that was the key thing. Uh, the British did not expect to be involved in the war in a major way. They expected to be mainly a naval blockade. And Britain did not have large land forces then. The British expeditionary force was quite small. We were an imperial power, not a land power. And so once Britain went to the support of Belgium, the Germans were not able to go round Paris, everything stalemated, and by the winter you had the dreadful trench warfare starting and the creation of a mass citizen army in Britain. So yes, I think the relationship between Germany and Russia and France was such that Germans decided they had to go through Belgium, and that, as Christopher says, is when Britain came in. And, and, and Christopher, many people at the time were was predicting it would be over by Christmas. Kitchener, however... Th- thought it would last and last. Dear old, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, dear old Kitchener was probably the only senior officer uh, in, in, in the British Army who said, no, 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 this is a long-term thing, apart from uh, the, the then Foreign Secretary, Edward Grey, who, could, who made the famous thing about the lamps going out over Europe. The important thing to remember here is that it became a war of 30 nations, 65 million people, 
and that was the that was the whole point. The people that we just didn't imagine could be anywhere on our side or anybody else's side, and so the consequence of that is that the Britain uh, the Britain could actually say to its it, its its um, uh, it, I can say its Commonwealth, but but its empire. Listen, you go to the states that the Germans are running at the moment, their colonies, and go fix them, and suddenly the, the whole thing cannot brought together with a very quick truce or anything else like that. But the other thing to remember is that when, as, as Paul said, with you know, before Christmas, the first big battle, Mons began, um, and then there was the retreat on, palace, on, on Paris, there were three million casualties before Christmas. And this is what Kitchener said, you know, this is going to go on for a long, long time. Okay, uh, Christopher Lee, thanks for your thoughts on that. Thank you also to Professor Paul Rogers uh, from the Peace Studies Department at Bradford University for joining us today. Uh, As we remember the First World War, this weekend BFBS Radio is broadcasting a new documentary called Artifacts and Armaments, Ten Objects that Tell the Story of the First World War. BFBS presenter Michaela Roach has travelled from the Scottish Highlands to Portsmouth's historic dockyard to see the Ten Museum exhibits, including an early gas mask, a mud and blood-stained kilt, a biscuit with a message, a brass bell, and a Mark IV tank. And Michaela joins us now. How did you come up with the idea of of, of telling the war in this way? Well, I've always been fascinated by the power of a single object and how one small museum exhibit can open up avenues, themes, and really tell that human story behind a conflict or a period. And uh, it was just to to take a big subject like the Great War and how do you sort of compress that down into an hour? So I chose ten objects from museums all over the country and uh, travelled and spoke to the curator and experts about those objects. And I suppose it, because he, each each object has its own story and, and each of those objects has a number of people attached as part of that story. What were your favourite stories within there? Oh, my, my, my very favourite um, is the biscuit, uh, which was from the Somme and uh, basically it has writing on both sides. And uh, I loved this because it not only told a story of, of how um, the, thing, the sort of foodstuffs that were in the trenches, but it, it also was a real comment on the comedy on one side. It says, um, I wonder why they call us terriers, bark my Sunday tea. And on the other side um, was written, oh, mother dear, I am so dry. I have have to eat this or I'll die. Um, and we know that the soldier who did write on this biscuit did die um, in September 1916. So it was a real sort of comment on the, on the, the humour of the Tommies in the trenches and it had actually had a, a corner bitten off. So you don't know if someone tried it and thought, <laughs> oh no. Um, P- and possibly a rat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's sort of that, that example shows you how we were then able to talk more extensively about the food in the chen- trenches and curator Carl Noble um, read letters from the period so it sort of opened up other people's stories from that era too and of course uh, at a time like this uh, you see um, a lot of uh, publicity surrounding events at places like the Imperial War Museum, it is the big venues, many of these are in the much smaller military museums and and there are so many of them across the UK how did you track down the the, the ones you wanted? Um, My starting point was um, the Army Museum's Ogilby Trust, based in Salisbury, and they they have 136 under their care, if you like. That's the Army Museums. But I 
also went to the RAF Museum in Hendon and also uh, the Museum of the Royal Navy, Navy down in Portsmouth. Um, but I really wanted to get into those regions and, and give a bit of a window on those soldiers and those reservists that came from all over the country, from Scotland up in Inverness right down to Portsmouth. Uh, Christopher, of course, we saw on, on Monday evening um, the service at Westminster Abbey. There have been services uh, during the day uh, in Belgium. Uh, these big national set-piece events are getting the publicity, but there are smaller events. Do you, is this bringing the country together, do you think? I'm not sure it brings the country together. Um, but I think what it, the impression I got is that people have been more moved by the recollection of the Great War than they were of the Second World War commemorations. I don't know why, but that's the impression one gets. And small things have come out of it. Do you know why, for example, all the soldiers were called the Old Contemptibles? Because? Because Kaiser Wilhelm looked at the size that Paul Rogers mentioned earlier about the British Expeditionary Force, 80,000 men at Mons, and said, rubbish, oh, contemptible army. And the guys like that, we said we're the old contemptibles. Well, you can hear the programme Artifacts and Armaments, ten objects that tell the story of the First World War, uh, Sunday the 10th of August, that's this Sunday, isn't it, on BFBS Radio at 3pm. And Kyla Roach, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, Christopher, before we go, uh, tell us about Chapman Pincher, who, who died this week, uh, an extraordinary journalist with a lot of military influence. Yeah, he was an extraordinary journalist. Uh, on the Daily Express, he was the defence correspondent of the Daily Express. He was appointed by the great Beaverbrook. He upset the whole spy system in the United Kingdom, in Russia. He, he started pinpointing, saying, that guy's a spy. There are 105 guy, uh, people in the uh, Russian embassy. He also was the man who said that the head of MI6... Sir Roger Hollis, the now the late Sir Roger Hollis, MI5 rather, was working for the Russians and it didn't stop there. Macmillan tried to get rid of him. Harold Wilson said MI5 is spying on me from what he heard from, from Pincher. Pincher was the, the, the greatest of all the, the, spy, the spy takers. And there's that great, great quote, actually, I saw in one of the obituaries, Harold Macmillan uh, apparently wrote to his Defence Secretary at one point, can nothing be done to suppress or get rid of Mr Chapman Pincher? I was going to ask you if he had any influence, if people listened to him. It was in his him, lavatory. Ha- it was in Harry Pincher's lavatory at his home here in Berkshire, uh, on, on, on the wall, and he said to me, careful which piece of paper you use, old boy. Christopher Lee, thank you very much indeed and thank you to all my guests that is it for this week if you'd like to join the debate though you can follow us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP we'll be back at the same time next week but for now from me, James Hurst, goodbye Sports, sports and music, music. for the British.